So if you have your Bibles, we are in Genesis chapter 7, the last part. Um, Ray, thanks for reading the beginning part of verse 8. Um, this week I went ahead and just went up to, looked up uh, history.com and said, hey, what were the 10 worst floods in world history? And this is what came and what I discovered. Number one is there was a flood in John's t- known as the Johnstown Flood that equal the size and the flow, particularly the flow of the Mississippi River. This happened in May 31st, 1898 um, at 3 p.m. at a dam in Pennsylvania Lake. And it caused lots of damage, lots of mudslides, and 2,000 people uh, died after this. And they could not find the person or persons to be held liable. I don't know why this is number one, because the other two, the next two are worse. Um, in central China, uh, there was a flood that killed 3.7 million people in 1931, where three rivers basically busted and killed a lot of people. Um, the August, the, oh, no, the Yangtze, the Yellow, and the Hue, or Hue, H-U-A-I rivers, and those involved. This next one caught my attention too. It's known as the Great Drowning of Men Flood. This happened in January, listen, 1362. I don't know how you get history like this, but uh, <clears throat> this flood came about from a North Sea tempest in different parts of Europe, and about 100,000 people died. And I kept scrolling down. That's one, two, three, but Where's the great flood that killed everyone in the world when at that time, after a little over 1,500 years since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, some people crunched the math and there's 7 billion people at that time, minus 8 that survived, all died. And so that's the great flood. And a few things I wanted, that stood out to me as I think of these floods, they, they are tragic. Um, I don't know how you put your mind around 99.9-ish, whatever math you want to put around it, are all blotted out, are all dead at that time in Noah's life. And for these communities, you know, good big portions of people in their cities and countries and regions killed, um, I wouldn't even say instantly. You don't typically die instantly in a flood. It's kind of a painful process. Mud all over you, stuck in the mud, can't breathe, you suffocate. You know, you can't hold into that log forever. You're going to give out, right? And then you're going to drown. So it's a painful death. What I find interesting in this passage before we jump into it is that for God, he doesn't spend any time talking about how all the people died and how painful it was. That wasn't the main thing that he wanted to draw our attention. But as I put my mind a little bit into those who are left behind, particularly Noah, his wife and kids, and their wives. That's a hard, hard time emotionally, mentally. Much, uh, much fear, much trauma that they, they experienced. And so, with that, all that in mind, they continued to keep their eyes on Jesus and finish what God called them to, or, and they initiated. And we'll look at that. But this morning, we are going to look at Genesis 7 17 through 5, 8, so that we might catch a healthy fear of God and catch a glimpse of His glory 
and recognizing that, yes, it is God who destroys and it is God who delivers. And so if you haven't recognized in chapter 5 and 6, we get an idea that God is holy, God is very just, God is serious, God is hates sin. He's seen a generation, multiple, multiple generations since, <coughs> since Adam to Noah grow up in rebellion against him. And God, over and over, in his kindness, brings about warning. And he's, he's warning that judgment will come. He's warning that his wrath will come and blot out all humanity and all the creatures on earth. He promises and it's come to pass um, here in this section of Scripture. And so we're just going to look at two things, how God destroys and how he's right to do that, and then how God redeems. And so if you've been tracking along, he has every right to destroy because he said at the very beginning, right, <clears throat> if you disobey me, if you eat of this fruit, if you go away your way, you seek to be your own king, um, you will surely die. And so this is this outflow of it for billions of humanity. And so we see God destroys in Genesis chapter 7, 17 to 23. We'll just look at this. God's destruction, destructive, we see a destructive worldwide flood here. Um, in these verses in 17 to 20, we see words over and over. Waters, five times, increased, two times, rose, three times, greatly, see so a nice adverb, three times. These type of words dominate. It talks about the word, the water, what? Escalating, building up higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. And so Moses records in verse 7, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The water, what? Increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. How long? A literal 40 days. Um, that's just the water coming down part. <clears throat> How long does the water last? Well, we'll see. That's coming up really soon. Verse 18, the waters prevailed and increased greatly. We have another adverb. We see the waters just coming and coming and coming. And it's happening where? On the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the water. So big ark. Big, big ark made of, what, heavy, heavy wood. Enough Enough water there to float this ark. We see in verse 19, and the waters prevailed again. Another nice uh, um, adverb. So mightily on the earth that all the high mountains were, what, under the whole heaven were covered, were covered with what? Water. And so we see, again, the water over and over. Verse 20, the water prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. The Bible doesn't say what the tallest and highest mountain was in that day. I don't think, this is just me talking, I don't know if it's as high as Mount Everest, <coughs> what we see today, but whatever mountains that existed that day, we just know that they're all covered with water, 15 cubits. We know a cubit is about 18 inches, so we're talking about 22 feet. So there, there's mountains <laughs> below the surface of the water at this time, and so... That's what's happening here. We've seen this the last several weeks. And then all the flesh that moved on the earth died. All right. Um, and I imagine some of the, the, some of the floods we saw at the beginning, the first three, and you can imagine the aftermath of that. You know, and humanity buried under mud, housing. Maybe you see some people that were died. You see legs and arms sticking out of the ground. <clears throat> There's animals underneath. 
Think about this big blender that happened here. I don't want to reduce the whole flood of the world to a blender, but essentially it's what happened. It's a big blender. Blended a lot of animals and humans all around the face of the earth. And so we see in verses 21 to 24 this language of all, every, everything. It talks about the pervasiveness, the widespread, the universality of this flood and of the wickedness. Um, this is basically unpacking verses 6 through 8 in a, in a very focused form, or maybe even first 5 in a little broader form, depending how you look at it. But you see in verse 21, all the flesh died that moved on the earth, including the birds, the livestock, the beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, all mankind. That's a lot. All of mankind. Everything on the dry land whose nostrils was the breath of life died. God, in his holiness and justice, chose a water judgment to clearly unleash his wrath upon sinful man in this way at this time. We know it will come again one day, but this first time around, no one escaped except for Noah and his family. And I find it interesting that these people knew it was coming, they chose to live their own way, and they chose judgment over repentance, forgiveness, and grace. That's no different than, than it is today. In verse 23, he, God, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, <coughs> man and animals and creepy things and birds in the heavens. You know, even birds need to, what, land? Even birds need to have food. All that was not available at this time, over this course of time, and they eventually died too. And they were blotted out from the earth. Humanity was purged by the judgment of God. So if we cross-reference this over to Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39, we see a quick parallel here. For as were the days of Noah, so will it be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Verse 39. And when they were unaware, they were living unaware all the time, constantly, until the flood came and swept them away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So, <clears throat> very similar in the parallels between the first century, or what, in the time of Noah and today. Uh, people are living their own ways. They're living as their own king until judgment came, and so are people today. And so it will come as they were what? Unaware. And the Son of Man will come, and he will judge the living and the dead. And so, this is, uh, <clears throat> sin is terrible. Judgment w will happen one day. Uh, many people, yes, are unaware. And the only ones that will be spared are those who have come to Christ. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Those who have gotten into the ark by faith alone, by grace alone. 
through the person of Jesus Christ, person of Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone. His righteousness is so important because our standing before a holy God is not good. <laughs> it's not even at the B level, the C level, the D level, or the F level. It's an F minus with a lot of minuses at the end of that. Our righteousness before a holy God is nothing. It's filthy rags. It's spiritual impoverished. We need the righteousness of Christ to make us right before a holy God. So, just like Noah, we say today and we plead, you must turn or you will burn. You must repent and repent and turn to Christ and receive his righteousness and be justified and forgiven. Um, going on, um, sometimes, sometimes I realize, why did God choose this way? And you just stand back. Sometimes death needs to happen before life. As you look back in your own Christian life, we needed to die to self. We needed to die before we what, were made alive in Christ. I think even practically, a few years back, I had, when we bought our house, we had brand new fescue. And I didn't know how to deal with fescue. I didn't know how to deal with weeds. And there was a point where there was so much more weeds than there were fescue anymore. And I just like said, this needs to die. <laughs> There's so much to, that, that, that's overrun in the grass. So we killed the grass. We flipped it all over and waited for it to die before we started a new seeding of grass. And so in God's economy, he knew, according to his will, that he wanted to reset all of humanity. And so God destroys. But it doesn't end there. He had a bigger plan, and we see that God delivers in the rest of Genesis 7, verse 23 to 8, 5. So, up to this point, we kind of see, what? God building up the storm, building up the water, and it seems kind of redundant to the average reader like me, but I believe that God is building up to a point, and we've kind of said this point over and over, but 7 billion people minus 8-ish, or definitely 8, but I don't know about the 7 billion exactly, Everyone's wiped out, screaming, yelling, drowning, drinking water, sucking into the lungs and everything. And this is, you just, what times I think we just read this and like, oh, we don't, we don't think about that. Babies dying that way. Grandfathers, grandparents dying. People that are 200, 500, 300, 100 years old dying this way. Um, but it says here in verse 23b, only Noah was left. Only Noah was left. God delivered Noah's family on the ark. As everyone passed, he spared Noah and his family. It says here in verse 23, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the water prevailed for 150 days. I want to focus here um, on Noah was left a little bit significant. David alluded it to in his prayer this is the fact that at times that God leaves a remnant for a reason. So Noah is that remnant. He is the one and his family are the only former ones of the former world to live, to eventually become future uh, patriarchs, to leave that direction of legacy. But it only would begin with him and his family. We see uh, a few quotes here. Um, only Noah was left. It is, this word left is derived from the verb 
to remain, um, a remnant. In Hebrew, the word sar, it's a theological idea of a remnant depicts the future hope of God's people as a holy gathered people. We see that in several verses. We see in the next verse, we see that God remembers. God distinctly, and he's contrasting from the previous verse, that it is God who remembers. It says, but God remembered Noah. God remembered his covenant relationship with Noah. He remembered Noah as a righteous man living amongst an unrighteous people. God's covenant with Noah brought brought provision and protection in the midst of severe judgment. The remnant was presented, pres- <laughs> excuse me, was preserved, and God initiated steps toward reestablishing the created order once again back on earth. Kinder put it this way: When the Old Testament says that God remembered, it combines the idea of faithful love and timely intervention. God's remembering always implies His movement toward the object of his memory. Ross puts it this way, the turning of the drama comes to the key word, remember. The verb to remember most often means far more than the intellectual (coughs) recollection. It signifies action based on what is remembered. Here the point is that God began to act on what he had promised Noah. It's a good thing that God doesn't have amnesia or Alzheimer's. He doesn't forget. God God remembers, and he follows through with his promise here. So we see um, God remembers Noah's family in verse 1, and also the animals, particularly the beast and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. And God made the wind blow over the earth. God went... And the waters subsided. So God basically used the wind to dry the land and also to evaporate the waters and reset up the atmosphere above, i.e. clouds. And we know um, in verses 2 to 4, we saw all this open up. Now we see things close. Verse 2, the fountains of the deeps of the windows and the windows of the heavens were now closed. But I want you to know, when things open... That was traumatic to crack open the ground to allow water to come up. Earthquakes happened. Lots of water came out. Lots of shifting of the earth happened at that time. Not on like, you know, 10-mile basis. We're talking thousands of miles of big, big cracks into the ocean floor at this time. And the rains from the heavens was restrained in verse 3, and the waters receded from the earth continually and at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. Verse 4, um, <clears throat> and in the seven months, did you see that? And the seven months and the seventh day, seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the, mount, on the mountains of Ararat. So, you know, I forget. I thought it was this 150 days, right? That's only how many months? Five months, right? But it's longer, because well, it gives us this later date, and we'll add up the rest of the math real soon. But where did the ark land? I just want to point that out real quickly. Mount, land on Mount Ararat, right? Um, these are the mountains of Ararat. We don't know particularly where. 
Some people have claimed over the years that they have found um, different locations, um, but most of us would agree definitely it's in the mountainous regions of the Mesopotamia at the elevation that exceeded 17,000 feet. Uh, many scholars across the board agree on that. Uh, people over the years have excavated these different sites on the screen. These are all different places. See the little dots. People have jumped up and down and said, hey, I found it. It really doesn't matter where you found it, but I thought that was just interesting information. And then this next picture, in 2019, some have claimed that this place is the place, but they haven't clearly decided, but it does look arc-ish shape. Um, but it doesn't matter here or there. The whole point is what? God allowed the water to subside. And then in verse 5, the waters continue to abate until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen once again. Okay, this is a long period of time. How long was this period of time? Well, let's pause and do the math. If you see on the screen, we knew it included what? 40 days and 40 nights in those verses. And then the flood rose to its peak at the point in 8.3. And then it took another two and a half months for the water to recede and to reveal the peaks. And another four and a half months before the dove flew out. We will see next week in verses 8 through, or in a couple weeks in verses 8 through 12. So basically almost eight months this happened. Eight months Noah and his family were on one boat. Eight months, Noah and his family were doing a lot of work on this boat. Eight months is basically as long as one of your academic years if you're a student or a teacher. Um, eight months is some cramped quarters to what? Constantly take care of a lot of animals to take care of each other. Eight months is a lot of time to have some hissy fits and be mad at each other. Eight months is a lot of poop to deal with. Sorry, it's just a lot all in one boat. And so my first applications here, I have three, I think, or four. Why does this matter? Um, this is a, <coughs> the first application applied on those eight months. And I'm going to draw this out from Galatians chapter 5, verses 3, 13 to 18. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You know how many opportunities they had for the flesh on the ark? I'm so tired of doing this for all the animals. I, I don't want to do this anymore. How much longer are we going to be floating on this ark? It's been a month. It's been two months. It's been five months. It's been eight months. Long time, but not that long. But there are many opportunities for the flesh. But Paul says but through love, serve one another. I find it interesting that no one on the ark said, let's, let's abandon ship. Not a single one said, I'm jumping. Not a single one. When that storm came, they all remained on the ark. It's interesting when the, we have struggles relationally in one place or another, flesh wears his ugly head, and we say, what? I'm going to abandon ship. Paul says, let's love one another. Verse 14 says, for the, the whole loss, the for, for, excuse me, verse 14 says, for the whole loss fulfilled in one word. Well, it's actually a phrase here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't, verse 15 will happen. But if you bite 
But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So there's my application for today, our church. Um, we are an uncommon community. Um, we will go through ups and downs. We'll experience pain. I don't know how long ago it lasts. Eight months, more, less. We don't know. You know, there might be pandemic of other sorts in years to come. It might be longer, more severe. We're going to jump ship. We're going to bite and devour one another. I don't know what the future holds. But I know it's a test of our faith. I know it's not an accident. I know God wants to purify us. And I know that the Lord will have us, what, remain in Him and abide in Him and to bear much fruit in those seasons. So that's one application. Here's uh, an application from the science world for the fun of it. Some of you may or may not agree with this, but it's fine. We could disagree here, but this is kind of my take, and this is where I, it makes sense to me. Um, but uh, this is what it may happen ge ge geologically on the face of the earth. Considering the opening of the floors and to allow the water to come out, which is said in the previous verses, and then the closing, I believed at one time the whole world was basically one continent. And so during the flood, um, some things occurred. And some people will say, hey, we've had continental shift over billions and trillions of years, going a little bit, little bit, little bit at a time. Or others may say, hey, it all happened, or a good chunk of it happened during the course of the flood and the opening and closing, and the continents split fast and quickly here. And so um, <clears throat> there's these phases kind of developed in the flood, and the original supercontinent broke apart the start of the flood, releasing of the water, and then we see the next phase, the arc, I mean, the created rock was covered in the early, from the early deposits, and the plates collided to create mountains on the temporary supercontinent, and then later these plates separated, making the continents today. And you can see how that's all possible. If you look underneath the Atlantic Ocean between here and Europe, you see all the underground stuff and the cracks and the pushing up of mountains and the deep... Uh, deep trenches all within there. So you could take it for you, how you like. And then if you look at the next slide, this is how some artists see it playing out. Um, and so there you go. Um, really quick, I put two articles in your Slack so you could read more details. Each article is about three or four pages. But understand, there are big books written on this stuff. I just put it in, what, three minutes for your good. Um, <coughs> other things to consider... Um, evidence. Um, they have fossils, uh, massive plants buried um, all over the world. Some of the interesting things they like to say, hey, some of these same fossils look like the exact same things we see in the United States and Europe. Could it happen that these were right next to each other at one time and they had this big flood in the opening and closing of the earth and now they split apart and so there's these fossils here um, <coughs> of plants that are both found in the mountains of Russia and also in our own Appalachian Mountains. Same thing goes for basalt rocks. They're found all over the world. And even secular scientists call them flood basalts. That's how they named them. Secular scientists said these rocks all over the place were all created during this flood period, which I find amazing. 
So, um, last application, what are the central, essential applications of the gospel? Since this, this series is entitled The Gospel According to Genesis, for Noah and his family, after all this happened, eight months on the ark, after seeing all their loved ones, all their relatives, no joke there, all the relatives, <laughs> they're not just acquaintances, all the relatives, all passed quickly. God created and set up what? A new beginning. God delivers, sets up a new beginning. And so what is a new beginning for us? Well, it's found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 30, 13 to 14. It says, He, referring to Jesus Christ, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. It is Jesus Christ who delivers us from the dominion of darkness. And it is Jesus Christ who's transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sin. It is Christ who delivers. It is Christ who gives us a new beginning. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Brothers and sisters, we are made new. Last Sunday, I don't know if you guys know this, I had a baptism class. We talk about the gospel first. And the person right there in that moment became a Christian. She goes, I've never done this before. I go, would you like to? And she prayed a prayer and said, I forsake my sin and I'm going to turn my life to Jesus Christ. And this person wants to get baptized now. It's amazing how God's sovereign, gracious grace works. Lastly, Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. John is looking in the future. He has a, a vision of the future, and he said, I saw a holy city. What is this holy city? A new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The theme of new is in the New Testament. There's a new beginning, a new creation. Now we see a new Jerusalem. We have a future hope. Well, before we get to that future hope, we have what? A life that we're called to live now as new creations. Um, a few thoughts about new creation. There's something about a new beginning that's exciting. Um, some of you guys have know that we've been driving around a car that is new. Um, it's been six months. It's lost some of its luster. I mean, even though there's nice coating and I saw hail beat down on it and then I saw snow sit on the car this morning. But there's a time, there's a sense when we appreciate that which is new. We value it. We treasure it. We're excited about it. And for many of us, I think sometimes we just need to think about what it was like when we are new Christians and be excited about that. Some of the saddest things when I think of churches that get older, and you saw it in the movie Jesus Revolution, as the older saints got older, some of them had a fresh faith still. But most of the church got grumpier and picked on the saddest things, the carpet color. Oh, those people, these hippies, they come into the, what, the church with no shoes on, and they complain about the pettiest things when they get older. May we have a continue, what? Fresh, new faith, and be excited. It's sad commentary in my own life. I, I led more people to Christ in my first few years of my Christianity in the last 20, 25 
I think I had a greater excitement. I just super enthusiastic. Let's go. Let's go tell other people. Let's find other people to go tell other people about Jesus too with. And we just did. And it was, we made it a fun thing. And sometimes we get to have more information. We are bound by our own information and we lose the love of Christ and the freshness and the newness that was once there. I want you to know that information, what? And knowledge puffs. And sometimes we're arrogant. When knowledge is connected to Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ is tied in there and the spirit of God is tied in it, it brings forth what? Transformation. That's what the aim is when we come to Bible study. Not that we know more than others. Not to show off our knowledge. But that we would be transformed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity on this rainy day. <laughs> it's nothing comparison to the wrath that you pour out on Adam to Noah's generation. But we know that you will come one day and you will pour out your wrath and help us to be the church that you want us to be, knowing that your imminent return is just that, imminent. You will come back one day. You will judge the living and the dead. And I hope and pray that as a church that we are ready. We aren't just twiddling our thumbs. We aren't just wasting our time in life. But that we would number our life, understanding that life is a vapor and we only have so much time to live. I hate saying this, but I know the life expectancy is about 75, and I'm 45. <laughs> I'm just doing the math right now. I want to make this life count. Yes, my son helped me with this math the other day. Dad, you only have 26 years to live if life expectancy is true. So I don't know what our life expectancy is, but you do. So help us, Lord, to make our life count. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.